you have brought your Bibles, and I hope that you have. Turn with me to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra, way back there in your Old Testament, just a little bit before uh, Job, before Psalms. Psalms is close to the middle, Job's a little bit before that, and, and uh, Ezra is a little bit before that. So anyways, you brought your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra. Ezra chapter 3. I want to begin there this morning. Uh, that's where the, the text, the base of our message is going to come from this morning. I, uh, I'm going to reference and quote some other scriptures, of course, but, but we're going to be anchored there at Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. Now, we went through the book of Ezra in Bible study. It's been a few years ago now, but if you were here and part of that then, then some of this should be kind of refresher, reminder for you. Uh, for those that haven't, I, I'll give just an extremely brief overview uh, of Ezra and the events around it as we get started here. But I want to read our scripture and I want to go to the Lord in prayer first before we do anything. All right? Because that's the... That's the two most important things. Those things are way more important than anything that I might say. Ezra chapter 3 verse 1 says, And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up Joshua the son of Josedek, and his brethren the priest and Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil and his brethren, and builded the altar of the Lord of Israel, and excuse me, to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his basis, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feast of the Lord that were consecrated, and every one that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month uh, began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters uh, in meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon <clears throat> and to them of Tyre to the, bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. Let's pray. Will you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we just humbly come before you one more time here this morning thanking you for the good day and for the many blessings. Thanking you for the opportunity you've given us to gather here this morning in spirit and truth to worship you. And Lord, my prayer as we go forward here this morning is that you would move in our midst in a mighty way. God, that with 
your word, your message that you would stir our hearts here this morning. My prayer this morning is that you would meet every need amongst us. Lord, I know that there are some that need to be lifted up and encouraged, some that just need to draw nearer to you, to walk closer with you, some that are maybe uh, harboring sins or living in sin, some that are just uh, maybe doing things or thinking about things that they had not to be, right? I, I, I know there's various needs and various things going on here this morning. Lord, but I know that you're able this morning to deal with each and every one of these. And Lord, so that's my prayer this morning, Lord, that you'd give a healing touch to those in standing need of it. Lift up those that need to be lifted up. Convict those that stand in need of, of conviction. Lord, if there's any among us that don't know you, any that are lost and undone, any that are not saved, any that have drifted away from you or just not where they ought to be or where they once were. Oh Lord, let today be the day that they would come back to you. Let today be the day of salvation. Lord, let today be the day of renewal. Oh God, what I'm asking is I'm asking for your will to be done in our service, but not only in our service, but in the hearts and minds of each one that is here. So Lord, my prayer is that we, each one, would be receptive to what it is that you're doing here this morning, and we'll be sure and give you every bit of the glory for it. And Lord, one last thing I've got to ask for myself. I need your help this morning. I can't preach without you. I am woefully inadequate on my own. So God, I'm asking, clear my mind of everything but your message, your thoughts, your words. Place on my tongue the very things that you'd have me to say this morning. Lord, give me the boldness to say it. And Lord, I'm asking for your anointing, your holy unction, for a filling of your spirit. God, I'm asking that you'd preach me one more time. And be sure and give you every bit of the glory. Because we love you, we worship you, we praise your holy name, and we ask it all in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I was trying to think how to briefly recap and start this and give background for anyone who has forgotten or doesn't know. Um... The, the, the books in the Bible, uh, Jennifer even mentioned in Sunday school this morning, they're not in necessarily in order chronologically, you know, by date, timeline. I mean, yes, Genesis is the book of beginnings since the beginning, and Revelation is, you know, things that are still yet to come, and, and that's at the end. But everything in between is not necessarily exactly in order. And if we were going in chronological order, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, they'd be a lot later on uh, in, the, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the canon of Scripture. Uh, so probably everybody is familiar with Israel being carried away into exile. The Babylonians coming, destroying. And we say Israel, but it's really the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel split in half Years and years before that, the northern kingdom had went away from God until finally judgment come upon them. The Assyrians conquered them, carried them away. You ever heard anybody refer to the lost ten tribes? There's not really ten tribes that are lost. That's nonsense and foolishness. Uh, you know, that's really 
heresy is probably too strong of a word, but it's absolutely false doctrine and teaching. But that's where that idea comes from. The, the ten tribes aren't lost. And to show you how stupid that whole concept is, is do you really think God's ever lost anything? Right? And God knows where they're at. They're not lost. And they're talked about a whole lot later. And it tells us right there in the scripture where they go and what happens to them and, and how they're incorporated later. So it's, it's nonsense. But anyways, that's where that idea comes from. And so anyways, you have what is the southern kingdom of Judah. Later on, the term Jew comes from that. They're from the, what's called the kingdom of Judah. And, but all 12 tribes are there and part of it incorporated. They, in 587 B.C., are finally, really going into 586 B.C., are conquered by the Babylonians. Uh, they are led away into Babylon. It has been prophesied, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied, that they would be in captivity 70 years. And that is exactly what, hap is what happens. Now, the carrying off of the Jews right into exile, that's the term that is used, exile. While they're in exile, they're in I think you say it, exporia or whatever. But anyways, that is the 70 years they spend over there. It is in three waves that they are carried off, right? It's not everybody all at once. It happens in three waves that they are led off as captives, as prisoners in a foreign land. 70 years they are there, and they actually come back in three ways, okay? And so the last part chronologically, timeline-wise, of the Old Testament covers that, them coming back, rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of Jerusalem, reestablishment of worship, and them the nation. And it's all setting the stage for Jesus, for when Jesus is to come onto the scene from the last thing that we've got in the Old Testament until Jesus comes on the scene, we've got 400 years there. There's a lot of history that happens in the Jews, but, or in the, with the Jews and in the nation of Israel, but God is silent during those 400 years. The books that cover this period of time that you'll find scattered in a few places in the Old Testament is we have Ezra, we have Nehemiah, we have Esther. Uh, Esther happens in the middle of the book of Ezra. If I remember right, it's between maybe chapters 6 and 7, I think, or maybe 7 and 8, somewhere in there. But anyways, we also have in the prophets, we have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that all uh, play into this, right, and happen in this time period and have historical things that are going on there. So Ezra starts with the return of the first wave that come back, right? Cyrus, it's interesting, right? Here is Cyrus, the great ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire who conquers the Babylonians, issues the order for the Jews to return to their land and to rebuild the temple and reestablish worship. And here's the crazy, this is a pagan king, and the crazy thing about all of this is um, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, prophesied that Cyrus would do this by name. He doesn't say some great ruler or king later on will uh, set them free. He says, Cyrus my anointed, right? You can read that in the end of Isaiah chapter 44 and chapter 45. The crazy part about that is all this takes place. The, Isaiah prophesies of this nearly 200 years before it happens. 
The destruction of the temple happens 140 years, I believe, if I remember right, before Cyrus is even born. Isaiah. We, we got pieces of the scroll of Isaiah that is older than what Cyrus would be, right? Than before the birth of Cyrus. Undeniable, irrefutable prophecy, right? To me, it's one of the most amazing prophecies because it calls him out by name. And so he issues the decree. And Zerubbabel and Joshua lead the first wave to return. Okay? And so this is what this is what is happening. This is the first six or seven chapters. That's why I was trying to remember if it ends at chapter six or chapter seven before Ezra comes on the scene. But this is the first wave and the events and what it is that they do. And so it's interesting, and I'll give a few more pieces as we go along here, but I want to point out something in this first verse. Because what they have done, what the order is, what the permission that Cyrus has given them to do, right, what has actually been ordained by God is for them to go back to Jerusalem and reestablish worship on God's holy hill, on Mount Zion, on Temple Mount, Right? And so anyways, if you look at verse 1, right? Chapter 3 is, is worship is restored in Jerusalem, or at Jerusalem, okay? And, and the first verse, it says, When the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. I want you to notice that phrase, as one man. Right? God has ordained them and sent them to reestablish worship, and it says that they come together in the place of worship as one man. They are in unity. They are unified, right? In their minds, in their hearts, and in their desires, what they want to do. As one person, as one man, they were in one accord, right? They were wanting to start worshiping God again after 70 years of living in exile, right? They are here, it's what's referred to as kind of the second exodus, right? They are coming back, right? And here they are after that 70 years, and they wanted to reestablish worship. And part of the amazing thing about all this, as you read this and study this, is they were adamant they wanted to do it in a way that pleased God. See, it's a big difference between here and Ezra and the book of Malachi because we get to the book of Malachi, we realize and understand worship is going on, but the worship that's going on is the worship that pleases man, not the worship that pleases God. Hey, I've got a news alert for you. You look around the land today and there's a lot of stuff going on in a lot of buildings that's referred to as church houses that's not worship that pleases God, but instead is worship that pleases man. So here, we look at Ezra, and we see that worship was reestablished in Jerusalem. You could say this is the restoration of true worship. Listen to me. Many of our churches and our church houses today are in the same condition that they found Jerusalem in the Temple Mount in. 
They're in ruins. They're in rubble. I'm talking spiritually here. They're in ruins and they're in rubble and they are badly in need of the restoration of worship. They are in need of true worship. I'm talking of the only true and living God, right? They are in need of that kind of worship being restored. And listen to me, it does not end there. There are many Christians that sat amongst us and in our congregations and maybe, just maybe the Lord's speaking to you today, there are many Christians today that are badly in need of worship being re- restored or, re- or established, maybe just established to begin with in our lives and in our hearts. So, I think the question that, you, that we need to be asking and that the scripture is answering is what must we do? We see here biblically they reestablish worship that pleases God. I think therefore we can learn from that what it is going to take for us to establish worship in our own lives and in our church uh, that pleases God. So what is the first thing? that we must do, and the first thing that we read that they did is get in unity, right? As one man. They gathered together as one person. How in the world, you might be saying, can we do that? Well, it's not as complicated as you may think. It might be difficult, but it's difficult because of us, because we make it difficult. But it is not complicated. Here is what we do. We put on the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says that we have, as Christians, we have the mind of Christ. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We have got to put on the mind of Christ, right? We need to begin to focus and think about the things of God instead of the things of Justin or the things of Mike or the things of, uh, of, of Don or, or, you know, go on, put your name in there, right? Whoever it is, right? Our own things, right? We have be- got to begin to think about the things of, uh, of God, right? Uh, putting on the mind of Christ will put true believers, those that are desiring to worship God, in spirit and in truth it will put them in one mind and one accord in other words we take the focus off of uh, ourselves and we put it on God I never forget I heard this I should have heard it in in Sunday school as a child but I didn't go to Sunday school as a child I wasn't raised in church. So I heard it. I was actually already a pastor when I heard it. But I heard a teacher teaching the little children this. And I thought, man, that is so good. Uh, I wish I'd have learned this when I was little. Joy. How do you spell joy? J O Y, right? They put it, uh, they, I think, put it on the board or had a piece of paper up or whatever and wrote it vertically. J O Y. How, 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 do you, how do you experience this? How do you achieve this? The J is Jesus. The O is others. The Y is yourself. You, that's not the order that, that the society, that the world, that our culture teaches us. That's not the world, that, or that's not the order that we want to put things in or that we teach ourselves. We want to move that Y to the top. Well, when you move the Y to the top, it ain't joy no more, is it? 
Jesus, others, and yourself. When we take the focus off of ourselves and we move it to the top, right? Then you begin to put on the mind of Christ and your perspective, the way that you see things, changes completely. If we don't take the focus off of ourselves and put it on God, we will never, ever get anything done for God. It won't happen if we don't. Look at verse 2 and 3. Then stood up, I know that's a funny spelling, but that's just an alternate spelling for Joshua. His name is Joshua. Uh, then stood up Joshua, the son of jo- Josadak, and his brethren the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, and they set the altar upon his basis, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. I, I want to focus on one thing. There's a lot of things that we could talk about in those two verses. And there's something you're curious about and you want to ask me about later, I'll be glad to answer it for you. But I think what needs to be, in order to keep us on track here, and what needs to be pointed out, is they built an altar. The first thing that they did when they reestablishing worship is they built an altar and they offered sacrifices according to the ways prescribed in the Word of God. In other words, according to how they were instructed in the Bible to do it. Now think about this just for a minute. An altar is a place that is set aside for no other purpose but to offer sacrifices in the worship of God. Right? That is probably just the most generic, general, overall, um, simple definition for an altar. It is a place that is set aside for no other purpose but to offer sacrifices in the worship of God. This, an altar that is a place that's set apart like that, it is a sacred place. It is a place that is to be respected by everyone, right? It is a place of prayer, it is a place of praise, and it is a place of worship. It is a place that is set aside for the purpose of meeting with God. And did you notice that it is a priority for them? It is not later on down the road, right? It's not second, it's not third, it's not a tenth or whatever. It is, when it comes to reestablishing worship in the land, it is the first thing they do. It is a priority. They rebuild it in spite of the fear that they had. You could say they built it because of the fear they had of the people around them. Whatever that case may be, they done it before they did anything else. I think if you think about it, there might, there might be something to that. They did it before they even laid the foundation of the temple that they had been sent there to build or to rebuild. Right? The next section of Scripture talks about the laying of the foundation. They had, the reason they did was they had 
to establish that altar, they had to put that altar up in order to offer sacrifices because without the sacrifices, true worship was not established. You might be thinking, how in the world, that's all really good, and if I was here for a biblical history lesson, preacher, good job. But how does that got anything to do with us and, and worship today? Well, first of all, this thing right here, huh, that's an altar. Now, used to, back in the old days, they called it a mourner's bench. But it was more of a nickname. It's always been an altar. Why we got an altar up here? Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, last chapter in the book of Hebrews. It says, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Talking to Christians, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. Always keep on offering it. What in the world? And the scripture goes on to say, that is the fruit of of our lips giving thanks to his name. Hmm. I don't know if you've realized this yet or not, but what I come here to tell you this morning is we must offer the sacrifices up of uh, praise up to God. I'm going to tell you right now, we're talking about the reestablishing of worship. Then therefore, if worship is going to be reestablished, then a person must or a group of people must start offering the sacrifices of praise up to God again. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, right? Uh, uh, Jennifer read to you that section from First Peter chapter 2. I preached on it a few months ago, if you remember that. But anyways, it tells us in verse 5 that we are a, a holy priesthood, a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, right? Uh, that are, are, what we are to do is we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices, right? The sacrifices must be offered. Now listen to me. In the Old Testament, the family of Aaron was designated as the priesthood to God. But you see, in the New Testament, that priesthood becomes the birthright of every single Christian. In the Old Testament, God's people had a priesthood. But today, God's people are a priesthood. And we should offer sacrifices. The thing is, they're not what they used to be. But they are still sacrifices. Now, let, let me go on here for a minute. I'll come back to the sacrifice thing in a minute because it's that important. But there's something else that's got to happen if, we're, if, if worship is going to be reestablished. I'm talking in a congregation. I'm talking about in an individual. I'm talking about in your own heart. We've got to get in one mind and one accord. We've got to put on the mind of Christ, right? Our focus has got to turn on God, off of ourselves onto God. But there's also got to be a time that is set aside. Set aside time. We must set aside a place and a time to offer sacrifices to God in order to worship God in the manner that He has prescribed. He absolutely deserves 
No less. Verse 4 says, They kept also the feast of tabernacles, as it is written, offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required, and afterward offered the continual burnt offering both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and of everyone that willingly offered a freewill offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They kept the appointed times. They continued to assemble together on a regular basis to worship God and to make offerings in according with God's word. You might think, well, that was then. That was the Old Testament. New Testament's different. No, it's not. No, it's not. You're misunderstanding. Hebrews 10.25 specifically says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Huh. Seems like it was a problem 2,000 years ago, just like it's a problem today. But it goes on and it says, But exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. Just, listen to me, just the same as the Jews. We have been commanded to assemble together. And as things get worse, we're supposed to meet together even more often than what we did before. You know one of the signs of these churches that need worship reestablished in them? Is they're meeting together less often than what they used to. Huh, how about that? That's just the opposite of what the Bible says. Unless, of course, you feel like today we're farther away from the second coming than what we was 20 years ago or 50 years ago. You reckon it's getting farther away? Things are just getting better? Is that the way you see it? It ain't the way I see it. The Bible specifically says as we see the day approaching. And I'll just throw this out there. I got thoughts on this as a whole other sermon. And, and when I look at the clock, depends on which one I'm looking at, I'm about out of time. So I don't want to take time on it. But let me say this. God does not offer special protection. Right? Remember the people were scared, so they, off, so they built the, the uh, altar and offered sacrifices. God does not offer special protection to people who ignore him. You, you just let that one sink in for a while. So that takes me right to my next point. For worship to be reestablished, it must be a priority. They made it a priority. We've got to make it a priority. We must keep the meeting times in the places sacred and holy, set apart, right? In other words, it's got to be important to us. I'm not saying that you don't ever get sick or that you're not ever out of town or, or, or whatever the case may be. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what God's saying. But I'm saying that it's got to be important. It's got to be important. Here, let me put it this way. I usually put it this way, uh, and uh, it's just the way anyways. Let me just say it this way. Same thing I've been saying, but maybe this way will help. We need to plan our lives around God instead of planning God around our lives. Oh, we're awful bad 
to worship, set time apart to worship God when everything falls in place and works out. Listen to me, that's just the opposite. That's not worship. If it's not a priority, it's not worship. And if you don't have to say no to some things that maybe you want to do or feel like you need to do in order to keep the appointed times, then this may be profound, but listen, it's not a sacrifice. If you don't have to make some sacrifices, it's not a sacrifice. And if there is no sacrifice, there is no worship. It's really that simple. And lastly, look at verse 7, and then I'm done. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea of Joppa according to the grant that they had of Cyrus king of Persia. It was important enough to them to give of their money, of their time, of their material possessions. Listen to me. Without sacrifice, there's no worship. And we must give in order to sacrifice. If you ain't giving, it ain't sacrifice. Right? Look, look. What the Bible is teaching us is that the move of God's people from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant did not do away with the need of sacrifices. I think that's something that we have greatly overlooked or missed. And the reason we have is Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world did do away with the need for the animal sacrifices that were offered for sin. Absolutely. He is the once final offering for sin, period. But it did not do away with the need for every kind of sacrifice, for every reason. What the new covenant did was it changed what is now an acceptable sacrifice. It changed the kind of sacrifices that God would now accept. We must be willing, right, to give spiritually, sacrificially of ourselves. It has got to mean enough to us that we are willing, right? We're willing to give of our money. We're willing to give of our time. We're willing to give of our possessions, right? Maybe even we are, we, we're, it's going to be some things that we wanted to do. Maybe it's some things that were dreams. Maybe it was some things that we thought we needed to do, right? But remember what Romans, and remember Romans is in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. If it does not cost you something, it's not a sacrifice. And not everything that costs, costs money either. Right? Sometimes we get to thinking that and we say, well, it costs, we, uh, we just think money. You know, how much is it going to cost me? Right? That's that's modern American thinking, isn't it? 
Listen to me, everything that costs don't necessarily cost money. Jennifer, if you'll make your way this way, let me end with this thought. Luke chapter 6 and verse 36 says, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he that soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. There is definitely a correlation, a connection between giving and receiving. The blessings of God in this life, they flow through us. Think about that. The blessings of God flow through us. And we have the power to turn on the flow and to turn off the flow. Just like you got the power to turn the water spigot on and off. Right? The blessings of God flow through us and we have the power to turn them on or off. So I just want to ask you this question. I have mentioned several. We need to be offering sacrifices. And listen to me as you stand to your feet. If God's dealing with your heart, if you've got a burden, if you need to be saved, if you've got some things you need to get rid of, now is the time to deal with them. Listen to me. You've got the power to turn on the blessings of God because God wants them to flow through you. You've got the power to turn them off just the same. But let me throw something else out there to you. Right now would be a good time to offer Right, that, that sacrifice, right? of prayer. Right now would be a good time to bless someone else with prayer by praying for them. So if you've got a need, if you've got a burden, if the Spirit of God is dealing with you, whatever it may be, would you come? Would you come? Whatever it is, don't you miss this opportunity. Spirit of God dealing with you, you just come.